Good morning. January is a great time to retune our spiritual focus. You know, new year, new things, new purpose. Or maybe not so much new purpose, but what is our purpose? Years ago, we had a detailed purpose statement for our church. That's good for every church to draw up, right? We had a detailed statement. In fact, it had points and it had subpoints and it was multifaceted and it was so long, nobody could remember any of it. And so we as elders scratched our heads and we thought, you know, we can do better. So let's take out our pen and start scratching out things so that we can get down to what we think is essential and what is the overarching purpose that God has for us. Would you like to know what that is? Here it is. Our purpose is to glorify God by making disciples of all people. Would you say that with me? Our purpose is to glorify God by making disciples of all people. I like that. That gets down to what we really need to be focused on, what God's purpose for us is. To glorify Him, the overarching purpose of our life is to give Him glory, to honor the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? By making disciples. Not just merely head knowledge, but making people who are followers faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to our local neighborhood, no, to all people. It's like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. And so that's what we do. We have missionaries around the globe. We have people like Todd who go to Africa or other places. Praise God for that. This is our purpose. This is what God has for us. Friends, you have the ultimate purpose. Man, this is empowering. This is life-changing. This should give us juice in the morning. We have a purpose. And it's really interesting to me, in Genesis chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, you know what God says? His ultimate purpose for us is to rule and reign. When God created the world and put Adam and Eve in it, his purpose was for them to rule over all creation, over all the animals, over all that God had created. Now, something happened. What usually messes things up? Sin. And sin happened. And it threw a wrench into the works both for them cast out of the garden and losing opportunities. But ever since then, sin has continued to have its impact because we all inherit, just like you inherit brown hair or you inherit this trait or that, or you're tall or you're short. We all inherit from our original ancestors the capacity and the inclination to sin. And so from that day to this, 
this world has been impacted by this. And you look around at all the geopolitical things that are going on, and guess what? There's sin. And that pretty much explains our problems today. But God was not defeated. Praise God. He planned to redeem humankind with the cross. The second person of the Trinity left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh. We've been celebrating that with the season of Christmas. He took on flesh, and ultimately, he did for us what no one else could do. He was the only sinless sacrifice who could take our place and pay the penalty for our sins. And so he died. So that the penalty is paid. And friends, if Christ paid all the penalty, how much is left for us to pay? None. Isn't that great news? And so God is now free to forgive and to bless us. And that is his desire. He offers us forgiveness of sins and eternal life with it. Amazing. Now that we are redeemed, forgiven, and brought into an intimate relationship with our divine heavenly father through Christ, what is our purpose? First, to glorify God. To glorify God. What does that look like? Well, this is, encompasses every area of life. We glorify God by the things that we say. What comes out of our mouth? We glorify God even by our thoughts. Trying to keep them pure. Trying to honor God with our thoughts. And every time we slip away, it's good to maybe recite scripture and to get back on track with our thought life. For example, not to be overcome with all the negativity this world is throwing at us and begin to think bitter thoughts. Put that aside. God says, put aside all bitterness, wrath, and clamoring. To glorify God includes what we do with our body, how we honor him with how we use our hands, where we go with our feet, and every aspect of our lives is an opportunity every day to fulfill our purpose to give God glory. We fulfill our purpose of glorifying God and living our lives in relationship in faithful service to him. And since God created man in his own image, we have the opportunity to do that. We are created in the image of God. We, we are drawn to him. We are animated by him. Man's purpose cannot be fulfilled apart from him. I thought of King Solomon as I prepared this, trying to live for his own pleasure. And yet, at the end of his life, he concluded, the only worthwhile life is one lived in honor and obedience to God. I mean, he tried everything. He had every opportunity. He was incredibly wealthy. If money can give pleasure and can give fulfillment, he had the ultimate opportunity, didn't he? 
Uh, sexual pleasure. Let's see, how many wives did he have? Okay. He, he wanted to explore what he could use his mind for. He, he was kind of an early botanist, classifying different kinds of plants and animals. And he did all sorts of things. He had all incredible opportunities. And yet, when all was said and done, you know what he figured out? It is futile. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word there, I believe, is hebel. And it means something that just evaporates. Just, you know, it was here, like you pour gasoline on hot concrete, what happens? It's, it's just, in a moment or two, it's gone, right? Well, that's the way it is with life. You can seek pleasure in, in fun. You can seek it in sex. You can seek it in material values and acquiring positions or whatever you want. And pretty soon you realize it's kind of like the guy that's climbing the ladder of success. And then he realizes the ladder is against the wrong wall. Solomon had every opportunity. And in the end, he concluded, I think he really got back to God. And he concluded that loving God and keeping his commandments is what really matters. That's another way of saying glorifying God. Well, Christ came and lived a perfect life. His ultimate sacrifice, in my opinion, is the big event of history. Then as Christ spoke to his followers, he gave them and us a task. Matthew 28, familiar to many. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always. We're not doing this alone. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So he spoke this word to his initial disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John, and the rest. But this command has never been abrogated or modified. It is still valid today as it was back then. We know that because he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have we reached the end of the age yet? Uh-uh. <laughs> Some wish we had, but we're still going. And whenever God calls it quits, that's when it ends. But we have a purpose until then. Friends, let's not give up on our purpose. Let's hang on to the divine purpose that God has given us. Now remember, the way to glorify God is by obeying the words of Jesus. Make disciples. We do this both corporately as a whole church and individually. This command is for all.
At age 19, I had been going my own way. And then things began to really fall apart. Someone shared the good news of the gospel with me, and I didn't buy into it right away, but they invited me to a Bible study. Somebody said there were guitars there, so I was in. <laughs> and I didn't understand what they were talking about, but I could see something very different about these people. You know, I've been in college, and in college, the guys are only chasing after the most beautiful woman, and they didn't care about anybody else or what they had to do. Here in this group, there was love. There was a really attractive blonde, and there was another gal that tipped the scales at over 300 pounds. And you know, amazingly, they treated them both the same. And they showed love and care for one another. And for me, I wasn't a Christian. They heard that I didn't own a Bible. So this poor group of college students took a collection and bought me a nice study Bible. I still have it. And Richard presented it to me. And I appreciated it. And I took it home. And I started reading. And guess what? It didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I didn't know cheese from chalk. I couldn't understand what it was saying. It was... It was Difficult to me. I mean, keep in mind, I wasn't a believer and I had no background. I'd never been taken to church. But Richard would call me. You know, he'd say, Hey, I'm preparing for a chemistry test, but I wanted to touch base with you. How you doing? Oh, man, Richard, I, I don't understand this passage. You know, you know, he really needs to be studying, but he says, Okay, let's open it up. And then we, uh, on the phone, he would guide me through that. And he helped me begin to understand. Now, I had questions. I had questions particularly about salvation because I'd heard different things, different ideas of how to be saved. And he took time and he tried to answer my questions. For example, one I remember was, what about baptism? I'd heard baptism and salvation and he explained to me, no, baptism doesn't save you, but what it is is a way to demonstrate that you have trusted Christ. And it's a logical next step. Once you trust Christ, it is good to follow Christ in baptism. He was baptized, and we should be baptized. It's part of the Christian life of following Christ. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. Well, I wrestled for many years with the question, how are people saved? As I was preparing this message, I went to one of my favorite sources for theological discourse, Facebook. <laughs> and actually, I found something pretty good. This is from a guy I have never met personally, but I've read his blog for a long time, and Really enjoy Dr. Stephen Cook. He shares, The Bible reveals that we are helpless to save ourselves. And then he gives verses that demonstrate that. And human works, however noble or great, have no saving merit in God's sight. 
How then are we saved? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward us. Grace is sometimes used as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that. God richly provides for our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing we bring to God to be saved. He is completely satisfied with what Jesus did for us at the cross. By faith, we trust Christ alone to save us. The challenge for us is to stop trusting human works to save us and to cast ourselves completely on Christ as our Savior. He is right, as I have studied for more than 40 years what the Scriptures say about salvation. This is God's path. This is God's plan. And yet, confusion remains. Many Bible teachers try to work works human merit into the salvation plan. Pretty much every cult that exists has one form or another of works for salvation. God's grace is different. Um, we keep wanting to, to make it a condition to do this or feel like we have to contribute something. I kind of got a picture of this a long time ago. This is a story I've shared, but I was an incredibly poor college student. And after college, I went to seminary. I was even poor seminary student. I mean, I, I just didn't have anything. And uh, every dollar went to pay for my tuition and books and fees and my car was getting older and it was breaking down regularly and I was going to work and I was having a difficult time getting to work and how am I going to pay for the repairs? Finally, my grandmother had compassion on me and she said, Mark, she called me one day and I'm at seminary and she says, Mark, I want to tell you something. Okay. I want to buy you a car. What? <laughs> well, and she says, how much do you think we'll need for a car? And I said, well, grandmother, to get a good used car. And she said, stop. I want to buy you a new car. <laughs> and she did. Can you say Toyota Celica? Five-speed manual. Oh, man, it was fun. It was the most fun car to drive. <laughs> but I had located the car, and she was willing to pay for it, write out the check for the whole thing. But I just felt so guilty. I felt like I had to contribute my part. And I looked at my finances, and I thought, well, what could I give her, really? Maybe a hundred dollars? Maybe if I, you know, really scratch together, maybe $200. So question. 
do you think my grandmother really wanted me to kick in 200 bucks to buy a new car? Or do you think she just wanted to give me the car out of a gracious heart? My friends, our God is a gracious God. Our God wants to give us the gift of salvation. Beautiful thing. Still, there are Bible passages that are confusing. There are dozens of difficult passages that preachers often use as, and I will, I'll call them problem passages, to teach that we are saved or kept saved by our good works. Now, many of you know that I study Bible prophecy. I love to study Bible prophecy. I get into this. But you know what? In spite of the fact that I've made that kind of a hallmark of my ministry, I really think that there is a topic that is more important than Bible prophecy. What do you think it is? I think it's salvation by Christ. I think that is the key. That's the foundation. If you're going to build a skyscraper, you don't start building it on muddy ground, do you? No, you need a good foundation. And when it comes to building the superstructure of a godly life, we first must have a proper foundation. And Scripture predicted in the Old Testament and records it fulfilled in the New Testament that Christ is our foundation stone. He's the one it all revolves around. He's the one that we build that foundation on. His works are the important works. Basic? Yes. But is every passage easy to understand? No. At issue is recognizing a difference between good works for salvation and good works following salvation. The clarity of the gospel is the key. Dr. Charlie Bing, a friend for many years, has written a great book to help us cut through the confusion. It's called Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship. Subtitle, How to Understand Some Difficult Bible Passages. Now, I've read thousands of pages on this topic from different points of view. And this book is one of the best. Dr. Norman Geisler highly praises this book and says he has put it on his short list for dealing with problem passages. Let me read a blurb strictly for the purpose to give you an indication of where I'm going from here. Many Bible passages are difficult to understand, especially when it comes to the issues of eternal salvation and following Christ as a disciple. In grace, salvation, and discipleship, you will find how to approach over 130 difficult Bible passages. 
beginning with a clear understanding of God's grace and using a unique paradigm of A truth, B truth. To learn from and follow Jesus as Lord is one of life's B truths. To believe in Christ as Savior from sin is A truth. Give you an example of this from John where you see actually both. John chapter 8, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Question, were they believers? That's not a trick question. Yeah, they were believers. Many believed in him. They're believers. New believers, but believers. Then Jesus said to those who believed in him. So is he talking to believers? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. What is the condition for being a disciple? To abide in his word. To read the Bible. To see the words of Jesus. And I would also add with that, his followers, his apostles, who wrote what he wanted them to write. And to follow those words. If you do that, if you follow with a good heart what the Bible says, you are a disciple. So let's use a T-graph and put A truth on one side and B truth on the other. A truth includes salvation, that initial Christian experience. Being born again happens in an instant. It is a gift. Discipleship is be truth. Discipleship comes from a word that means learner, mathetes. You hear mathematics in that, something, a discipline you learn. And it refers to the Christian life. Lifelong process here. Discipleship speaks of our works. A truth, it's a gift. B-truth relates to our works. A-truth, faith in Jesus Christ. Lewisbury Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary and kind of a hero of mine, famously said that over 150 verses link faith to salvation. B-truth concerns works for Jesus Christ. Now, I don't deny that good works are important. Just don't get the cart before the horse. Good works don't save. A truth, grace for eternal salvation. The nature of grace is that it is undeserved favor. I'm convinced of the freeness of God's grace and salvation. God's grace requires no human works performance, or merit. If you don't believe that, check Romans 11.6. That's what it says. Salvation is based on solely the merit of Christ. Be truth. Merit for eternal rewards. Once saved, God wants us to do good works and will reward us. Being a disciple is where works and merit come in. 
A truth concerns justification, that initial act where God declares a person righteous, not just so-so, the very righteousness of Christ. It's, it's a legal term. Imagine, if you will, that you were standing before the bar of God. God is the judge, and you're standing there, and it's a courtroom scene, and the gavel comes down. Here's the verdict. Not guilty. What a glorious thing. Now, all of us have guilt because we've done things wrong. But that guilt is removed. And in its place, God declares us righteous. Now, when people come to Christ, oftentimes they have condemning thoughts. I'm just not worthy. I I really did wrong. And, And that may be true. And God wants us to get those things right. That's true. But never forget that ultimately he has declared you now and forever righteous. You've been declared to have the righteousness of Christ. But then there's sanctification. The progressive process where a person is set apart. Here we become more Christ-like We are freed from sin, and God is transforming our lives. Amen. This is great stuff. A truth is spiritual birth, the analogy of biology, only this is in the spiritual realm, talking about being born again, John 3. And then, B truth, there's spiritual growth. A baby's birth is distinct from its subsequent growth. I was born on December 21st. Yeah, Christmas baby. (laughs) Born on December 21st, but right after I was born started my growth. And the same is true. I can't give you the exact date of my salvation, but as soon as I was born again, God begins a process of cleansing my life of past impurities, of making me more Christ-like. And it's God's work in us. A truth, it's a gift given. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. faith. Thank you. And this salvation is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And then again, also, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. But when we turn to discipleship, be truth. Discipleship refers to a prize earned. It's more about a prize earned. Rewards are earned through our conduct as we seek to honor Christ in our lives. A truth is a relationship established. God becomes our father. Now before we were enemies, scripture says. So to take from being classed as an enemy of God and to become his son, his daughter, isn't that wonderful? We have this wonderful new relationship. But be truth concerns fellowship enjoyed. Every son is related to his father, but not every son has a quality relationship. 
with his father. So in this category of be truth, life after salvation, we want to continue to get right with God, to repent of sins and walk in his ways. A truth concerns believing in Christ for salvation. Acts 16, 31, Paul says to a guy, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. This jailer, this Philippian jailer believes. What happens to him? He's saved. <laughs> and you see it in his works that follow that. But the believing in Christ is what saved him. Contrast that with committing to Christ as Lord. As Savior, Jesus saves. As Lord, Jesus rules. We follow Jesus by keeping his commandments. That's be truth. A truth, we're condemned for unbelief. Not that we are, but unbelievers are condemned for unbelief. B truth, discipline is for disobedience. Once God, our Father, once God is our Father, He will discipline us out of love. Not because He hates us, not because we're alienated from Him, but because He loves us as the way we are but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Well, we could add more things to this A truth, B truth. I'll just kind of wrap up with one more that's not on the list. The different judgments. Unbelievers receive one judgment. Believers receive another. For unbelievers, there's the great white throne judgment. After a lifetime of rejecting God's gracious offer of salvation... God will judge unbelievers based on their works. But for us as believers, we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And all of our good works will be evaluated, not to condemn us to hell, but for the purpose of rewarding us as we go into his kingdom and to his rule. Learning to see the distinction between A, truth, and B, truth, that is salvation, versus discipleship in the Bible is the one thing that makes people understand the Bible, especially the New Testament. It's been a game changer for many. This is an excellent way to make clear what may first appear, this verse or that verse, to be a problem passage. Context is the key. Context. From this comes an understanding of everything. Understanding the context, the reason the biblical author is writing, what has come down to us, and, what we, have, uh, and we have come a long way to understanding the Bible. Context is important. The A-truth, B-truth principle is simply that all passages of the Bible can properly be divided into talking about salvation or discipleship. And when we understand it in that context, things begin to become clear. For example, um, when we understand the context of James chapter 2, uh, a, a passage that one man, one commentator, one book called the uh, thorniest problem in the whole Bible. And James chapter 2 is often brought up to say that works save us, works deliver us from condemnation and get us into heaven. 
But the problem is, it's not talking to unbelievers about how to be saved. James chapter 2 is writing to believers, in fact, to the church. And the context is in the church. They'd been slipping from what God wanted them to do. Um, that, you know, they'd been saying, you know, the rich people in the church had just no care, no love for others. And so a poor person comes in the church and they say, ah, sit at my feet. Wouldn't even get them a chair to sit in. You know, they're, they're starving and they're out in the cold. And those people in that church were saying, ah, you know, be warm to filled and do nothing to meet their needs. And the problem was that this would bring discipline on the people. And they, they needed to understand that. So James chapter 2 is not telling us how to be saved. It's telling believers how to live, how to be loving, how to be a church. This key to understanding discipleship and good works is crucial. By the way, do we believe in good works? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, do we. I've always liked what John Wesley said, sometimes referred to as John Wesley's rule of life. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Wow. Isn't that a great comment? Do I believe in good works? Yes. As Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is wonderful is having the right motives. For some, doing good becomes selfish. What do you mean, Mark? What I mean is this. If a person does good works, thinking they're going to buy off God, and by their good works earn their place in heaven, why are they doing good works? For selfish motives. I want to I be saved. I'm going to do it myself. In that case, is Christ the Savior? No. We want to trust in Christ so we have this relationship. He gives us the gift of eternal life. Then we are properly motivated to honor God with our lives, with our good works, doing good deeds as a way to say, God, I love you, and I so thank you for what you've done for me. That's the purpose of good works, to glorify God and benefit humans. We believe in good works. We just don't want to have the cart before the horse. Well, since Christ died for us, let's obey his command and make disciples, teaching them to obey. People can only properly do what we are to do if we correctly understand Scripture. So remember to look for contextual clues. 
Is this talking about being forgiven or rewards? Being in a relationship with God or fellowship with God? Spiritual birth or spiritual growth? As we begin to plug scripture into that, we will begin to see things fall into place and contradictions are removed and we see the flow of scripture. In Acts 17, the Bereans were commended for taking what Paul was teaching and not just accepting it, but going to the scriptures and studying the scriptures to see if what he said was true. I really don't want you to just buy into what I've just told you or anything I tell you on any Sunday. What I'd love you to do is be motivated to get into the Word of God and study it for yourselves so you can see what God says. If I'm wrong, don't take what I say. Always depend on God's Word. I have some applications for you now. First, if you haven't done so, place your faith in Christ for salvation. There must be a foundation on which to build. Once you've done that, choose to be a disciple. Now, there will be a cost. I've suggested to you that salvation is a free gift of God but there's a cost for discipleship. That's why we need to see that these are different things that are talked about in Scripture. There is a genuine cost. Don't just say glibly, hey, I'm a disciple. Or, God, I promise that I'll be a disciple. You know what Christ said? He wants us to count the cost. He said, if you want to build a building, calculate if you've got enough to get it done. I remember driving on a major highway here in Texas, and every time I'd see that, I'd see a steel, a steel superstructure for a large building on the side of the road. And guess what? It never went any further. The weeds just grew up to about head height. Nothing was being done. They started to build, but they couldn't finish. And Christ says, don't be like that. Calculate if you've got the willingness, the determination, if you've got what it takes to carry through. Otherwise, don't plan on being a disciple. Don't promise God that you'll do something and then not follow through. Next, get your marching orders from the Bible. It's our compass, our guide. And Read the New Testament with discernment. Ask questions. Seek answers. Be a super sleuth. Go to the scriptures and find out. Go from novice, if you are there, to student, to teacher. Now you might say, I could never be a teacher. Well, all right, you may not stand up in the pulpit, or you might. I never thought I'd be here. But you can lead a group. Or you can serve 
you know, we have deacons and deaconesses and they serve faithfully and they encounter people with needs and problems and issues and they seek to try to help those people. And in the process of that, you may need to take them to the word of God to give them instructions where the scriptures bear on the particular point in their life where they need to hear the word of God. That's teaching too. So God can use you in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places. But we need to be in the word and be students of the word. Finally, take someone with you on the journey. We are to be disciples who make disciples. Be asking the Lord who he might have you to impact. It might be a grandchild. It might be someone you work with. It might be your neighbor. And don't, don't go over to him and say, hey, I'm going to make you my disciple. <laughs> no. First of all, we don't make him our disciples. We encourage them to be disciples of Christ, right? Be asking God who he might guide you to and be willing to begin to build a relationship. And as that relationship is established, then you have grounds to challenge them for the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, I thank you for um, the challenge to make disciples. Father, sometimes we get so wrapped up in politics or economics or this or that, we kind of lose sight of it. Father, it's simple and yet at the same time profound. We can have an impact on people, on this world best, if we do what Christ asked us to do. So help us put aside some of the busyness and be willing to make disciples for Christ. We pray it for his glory. Amen.